Well, good morning. It's very hard to communicate the joy that comes from being able to share God's Word, particularly in an environment that we have been cultivating here at Cornerstone for the last several weeks, whether it be through our Christian growth groups that have been speaking about the atonement thread and how God worked through His people Israel to bring them out of slavery, picturing salvation for us. Through our scripture reading that we have, if you follow along with the church's plan, that have brought us through, uh, again, the early history of God's people. Uh, but in, even in a more uh, close setting during our worship service today, of how God has blessed the church with hymn writers and songwriters that allow us to bring our thoughts and our minds collectively together around the central theme of what Christ has accomplished for us through his grace. And now as we continue through this study that will uh, carry us through the book of Exodus for the next few weeks, every other week or so, uh, again, it's my privilege uh, to be able to lead today through the first six chapters of the book of Exodus. Exodus. But before we begin, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your grace. Thank you, Lord, that you have provided that which is sufficient for us through Christ. Thank you for a congregation, a fellowship of believers that cherish your word and that value it to the point where we want to study it, that we want to feed from it, Lord. But I pray, Lord, that even when we neglect that, even when we are not adequate in the responsibilities and the duties that you've given us to do so, I pray that you would, by your Spirit, awaken us to the goodness of your Word. I pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes today to see the goodness and the profit it is for us to feed. And I pray, Lord, that uh, Christ and Christ alone would be seen today through the preaching of your Word. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we go through this study today, I would like for you to just think about a few things. One thing I'd like for you to consider is, why do you make the choices that you make? What motivates you? Now, sometimes we'll go through life and we'll say, well, I have no choice. I have to do this or I have to do that. Oftentimes, we complain because we don't have given to us choices that other people have. We think it's not fair that I don't have a choice between this or that because their choices seem more appealing than mine. But when it comes down to it, I believe that we can understand the reason why we make our choices based on what our value system is, what motivates us, what is at the end of that tunnel, what is the carrot at the end of that stick, so to speak, that we find motivational. Now, unless you think that this is going to be a Zig Ziglar repeat, I want to make it very clear uh, they were not going to focus so much on that, but I do want you to think about why do you make the choices that you do? Why did you get up out of bed today? Why did you come to church? Why will you pursue that which you've planned to do even this afternoon? Why did you go to work last week? Why did you work last week? Why did you go to school? See, there's all different types of questions that we could keep asking, but I want you to think more about why you chose to do that. What was it that you were seeking? Was it a temporal prize or was it something that you see a longer lasting thing? Now, when it comes to me going to work, 
I've got a couple of motivations to go to work. Well, one is that every other week I'm going to get paid so that I can go out and buy stuff. Now, some of that stuff is necessary. A lot of that stuff is not. But I enjoy the freedom to be able to spend money. But I realize that the only way that I can have money is to work for it. Unless you know somewhere out there that, you know, like the commercials, it's my money, I want it now sort of thing. You have to get that somewhere. And so for me, I found that it's the easiest way to do it is to to show up to work. But I've got other reasons to go there. I've got relationships. I've got people that I I enjoy spending time with. Most of them I don't, but some of them I do. (laughs) There's a motivation that if I want to be real spiritual and pious, I say, well, there's my mission field. That's where I have an opportunity to tell people about Christ. And there are some days where I'm motivated by that. Not nearly as much as I should be. But there are reasons why I get up and go to work. When we think about the Word of God, I think it often will challenge us as to where our motivations lie. And I think that there's no greater place to find that than in the book of Exodus when you look at the history as the children of Israel continue in their relationship with Jehovah God. Another thing I would like for us to think, and I guess we're all under the pressure now, thanks Pastor Chad, for the um, thought that I would like to leave you with, or one thing that you can take away, if you will, is you consider what it is that motivates you to remember that our faith in God's promise will guard us from being satisfied with nothing less than Christ. It's going to take us a little while to get to that here in the Scriptures, but I want you to be thinking about the fact that our faith in God's promise, will guard us. I choose that word very carefully. It will guard us from being satisfied with nothing less than Christ. The children of Israel had a promise. Talked a little bit about that the other week when Pastor Tim began this study. A promise made to Abraham that he would be a great nation. He promised them bondage, but yet there would be a time that they would be delivered from that bondage. He was promised a land. He himself, Abraham, and his family, local family, would not inherit it, but his descendants would, and there would be a place for them. And this was a very great promise. He was going to take the the smallest of, of people groups and make of them a large people group. And so we have a promise given, something to motivate, if you will, Abraham and his descendants. And as Joseph was used in a way to keep that promise going, we come to the book of Exodus. So there in chapter 1, we're not going to spend a lot of time going verse by verse through this. It's um, six chapters. While I would be glad to stay here for about six hours to do that, You probably would not. So we'll just kind of hit different places here. But what I would like for you to just consider is a very familiar story. The narrative here is not new probably to none of us, regardless of your experience in church. Even if you've been exposed to to bad depictions of it, whether it be Charleston Heston and his movie depiction or through Disney's animated films, there have been lots of portrayals of this narrative. 
And so while we go through here, it's, it's nothing new for us to consider the fact that now here in chapter 1, that there are descendants of Jacob in Egypt. And they're listed here. They join their brother Joseph, who has been used to save them from a, a famine. But in verse 6 we see that Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But as God promised them, through Abraham, the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. That's a pretty big turnaround. You've got a smaller group who are going to Egypt to be saved from famine. Their brother just happens to be, by the sovereign hand of God, in a place where that he can provide salvation for them from the drought, from the famine. And now this is a people that has grown and multiplied into a huge group. Again, just a little taste of what God had promised them is starting to be fulfilled. They could never dream this for themselves. As a matter of fact, there were probably days where Jacob was thinking, Oh my, <laughs> my family's not going to last. We've got to find some help somewhere. But God had not forgotten them. Now, over in chapter 2, when we think about... Uh, I'm sorry, we're still in chapter 1. Forgive me, I'm trying to rush through this really fast. But we see not only were they preserved to see God's promise, but they were settling in a foreign land. Now this is where the digression begins. God promised them to become a nation. And God had even promised them a land, but it wasn't in Goshen. It wasn't Egypt. But they settled there. This wandering group of nomadic people, if you were, shepherds, were now finding themselves at home. And the Bible tells us that they were going to spend 400 years being afflicted. But they were going to be spending time in this land. But if you think about it, what can happen over 400 years? I mean, you think about it, when you think in terms of the, the history of our nation, you could pretty much say that close to 400 years ago, people that basically make up the United States now started settling places over here. So you think about that time all the way until now, and think about how many things have changed. And we may be able to relate a little bit, because I believe that when we think about what can happen to people in a period of over 400 years... Not that I'm necessarily a pessimist, but I start thinking about all the bad things that can happen over four years. Like the fact that people can become content. You look around and say, you know what, this isn't too bad after all. The River Nile. Boy, it's a nice oasis right here in the middle of all this desert land. This is pretty nice. This is pretty nice property here. I can grow to like this. And then before you know it, you become comfortable. You're not really itching to go anywhere else. You're, you're ready to, to, to you know, not just put down tent pegs to know that you're going to pick it up later on, but we're building a foundation here. And over 400 years, think about it, you're in the same place. I grew up on a piece of property where I'm the only one really that has moved away more than five minutes from where I grew up. And I go back in my mind to try to think about how many generations spent their lives farming that land and are living on that land today. It really isn't that far, but you know what? It's far enough back to where we're, 
we're pretty comfortable there. If people started bringing in RVs and, and mobile homes and started building out houses on our property, wait a minute, no, this is ours. This is, this is where we live. You don't live here. This is where we live. And you start to become possessive of it. And then before you know it, you get very confident. The children of Jacob here, they looked around. We're getting to be a pretty good-sized nation. We're seeing more of us than we're seeing more of them. This is starting to really feel like home. This is starting to feel very, very comfortable. And I believe that something else that happened here that we could identify with is they also became calloused. I was reminded what calloused means not too long ago. A couple of weeks ago, I tried to take a rake and scratch up a little bit of my yard. I don't know why. Nothing but clover can grow there very well. But it was the first time that I had used any type of handled instrument since last fall. And I was reminded because I got a blister right here. But you know what, right now, the skin right there isn't soft or tender. As a matter of fact, it's kind of hard and because I've grown a callus right there that's temporary, I'm sure. Next time I pick up a rake or a hoe or something, I'm sure I'll start to blister somewhere else. But it just got hard. It got to the point where it was rubbed so much that it got toughened to what was causing the pain. And after 400 years, even during a time of affliction, I believe we see revealed throughout the book of Exodus, I'm not giving anything away, I don't believe, but as we see, I believe the people of God had grown callous towards Him and towards His promise. Now, if you were to go all the way back to when Joseph and his brothers were living happily ever after, so to speak, in the land of Egypt, having been saved from a famine, I'm sure they were probably, hey, now when's the rest of this stuff going on? We've been saved, and now let's keep, you know, the promise that he gave to our father Abraham. He's promised us the land. He's promised us to be great. When is this going to happen? And before you know it, generation after generation, after generation, after generation, and before you know it, promise? What promise? Aren't you comfortable here? Aren't you content? We have to remember that God had promised that He was going to bring them into this land for affliction. And while there are many who will argue that part of that reason was because of the sin of Joseph's brothers going on into the generations after him, We all know that, as we've been reminded by Pastor Tim and Pastor Charlie, even his last week, that it's through affliction that God grows His people. It's through discomfort that God awakens His people to life. It's the uncomfortable circumstances in which God grows people. And for those of us who are older, we may be able to relate to that a little bit more. To those of us who are younger, we haven't quite learned that yet. As a matter of fact, we're learning how to avoid it. And so, the descendants of Abraham had not only been preserved to see God's promise, but there came a time where they were just, they they were settled in a foreign land. But in verse 6, when Joseph died, and in verse 8, a new king arose who didn't know who Joseph was. 
Joseph was a second most powerful person in Egypt. Times change. These people who are growing, why are we being so nice to them anymore? Joseph who? And instead of being a relationship between Joseph, that became a threatening situation. These people are no longer uh, peers or co-workers or just cohabitants of the land. These people are threatening to us because they're going great. They're going to kick us out. And so this new king that arose over Egypt, who did not know Joseph, said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we are. Come, let us deal wisely with them, or else they will multiply. And in the event of war, they will join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. So they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor. Now this would include what we would consider slavery. But later on when it was found that this slavery was not getting rid of the people but seemingly multiplying them even more, infanticide. And this Pharaoh meant business. He was afraid. He did not want his enemies to have any... uh, Allies within his nation that might rise up against him. And so he did everything. Let's work him to death. Well, that doesn't work. That only makes him multiply. Well, let's just kill him. And so you think about the land in which the children of Israel were now in. They have digressed from being people full of hope and promise that we are going to be God's people. He's going to give us a land to the point where they're now content. They're satisfied to be in the land of Egypt, and now they find themselves in slavery and even threatened to the point of extinction because of this infanticide rage of Pharaoh. However, God isn't unaware of this. You might think that after 400 years, there were cows. Well, where's God? Why wasn't he reminding them of anything? Again, God's sovereign. God has not lost. He's not been absent. He did not lose track. He didn't have another universe out there somewhere that he was trying to, to guide. Everything was happening right on time. And as we were talking about in our Christian growth group this morning, uh, can you think of me? We're impatient after five minutes. The microwave's not fast enough. But for 400 years, God is working out his plan for his people. But there's still a promise. Over in chapter 2, we see part of God's promise coming to life through this man Moses, who is going to be God's mediator. He was going to be the one who was going to deliver them from this land of servitude to a life of servitude. Service. When you think about serving this promise that God had made that he gave to Moses uh, that it was a call to service now who was this man a little bit more again we're familiar Moses was delivered from this infanticide God had strategically in his sovereign plan put people into place so that Moses of all the all the male children being born would not be murdered Moses escapes from Egypt even after his temper shows himself to be 
a loyal Hebrew in killing one of the guards who beat one of his fellow Hebrew men to death. When he realized that people understood that's what he did, he ran from Pharaoh because Pharaoh was out to kill him. Moses himself settles in a strange land, finds a wife, has children, works for his father-in-law. But in chapter 3, he encounters Jehovah. In verse 1, Moses in chapter 3 was pastoring a flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And it was there, verse 2, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire in the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight while the bush is not burned up. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. And then he said, Do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. As far as the scriptures indicate, this is the first encounter that anybody has had with God since the days of Joseph. Now that doesn't mean that God was not speaking, did not reveal himself, but in scripture, this is where we see God returning. Now the reason why he is now returning, as it were, to the scene, if you look in verse 24... Of chapter 2. It's called God heard their groaning. He remembered his covenant with Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. He saw the sons of Israel and God took notice of them. That's why God has now, the time has come. His plan is being fulfilled. He hears the children of Israel who. Remember, they weren't praying, God, now when are you going to fulfill your promise? When are we going to that new land of ours? When are we going to conquer the Canaanites? When are we going to conquer all those people that gave Abraham a lot of trouble? When are we going to go and do it? They weren't praying about that, but boy, when the labor got hard, they started crying out because of the slavery, and God heard their cry. And He remembered His covenant, not that He what was that again? I know there's something I'm supposed to be doing, and man, it's been 400 years. I better hurry. What is that? It wasn't that he had forgotten and remembered. It was simply that he was marking it. This is my covenant. My plan is being worked out. And so he remembered what he had promised to Abraham. And he knew his people. He knew them Intimately. Through working with Abraham, through working with Isaac, through working with Jacob, through working through Joseph. He knew them through experiences through them. And he knew them and he fixed his eyes on them. So Moses, here I am in this bush. And you are going to mediate between me and my people. I want you to remind them of the promise. Now back in chapter 3, verse 12, if your neck's not tired of going back and forth, it's going to be limber by the time we're finished. 
God said, certainly I will be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you, and when you have brought the people out of Israel, you shall... The New American Standard, which I'm reading out of, says worship God at this mountain. Some of you, if you have an ESV, says serve. It's Sunday morning, you can still speak out. That's all right. Yes, serve, worship, serve. Does anybody have anything other than worship or serve? Probably not, unless you have a really obscure, or maybe you have the original text in front of you, and then we wouldn't be able to understand, maybe Pastor Tim would, um, what you were saying in Hebrew. But God says that this is going to be a sign to you, Moses, that you are the one that I'm calling out, that when you bring them out, now notice that God's not saying, now if you happen to convince Pharaoh to bring them out, but when you bring them out, you're going to bring them out, and they will serve me, this mountain. Now this term, serve, it's the same word that we convey the idea of slavery that Pharaoh said, I'm going to make them serve me. Now while there is more than one Hebrew word, and even for application later on, there's even more than one Greek word that can be translated slavery. But there's no denying that there is a connection between what Pharaoh said that I'm going to make the children of Israel do and God says, I'm going to bring them out and I'm going to make them do it too. It's just going to be two different types of service. It's going to be two different types of slavery, if you will. Now that sounds kind of harsh because we don't like to think in terms of being a slave to God, but we'll see that later on. But not only would there be a word given that Moses could say, now this is a sign to me that this is what I'm supposed to do. But if we look over in chapter 4, verse 23, God tells Moses, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, let my son go that he may serve me. Now you think about that. Here is the most powerful man in the known world at the time, Pharaoh, who he says, you know what, I'm going to make these people serve me. Here comes a servant of God, the God of Abraham, who says, now Pharaoh, I know these people are serving you, but God says, I'm going to bring these people away from you and they're going to serve me. That's kind of threatening talk. Pharaoh would respond, well, I don't even know who this God is. What do you think? Oh, by the way, let me go make them work harder for me. Does it get any easier? So there was a sign given to Moses, and there was a sign even given to, to Pharaoh, if you will, that what God was delivering them from was not away from slavery. It wasn't away from service. It wasn't away from giving themselves over to somebody else. There was a, a, just a change in who you're giving self over to. Now, wait a minute. Let's think about these people again. Now, what's happened after 400 years? They've gotten pretty content with what they've had. They liked it pretty good when they weren't serving anybody. They liked it pretty well when people weren't telling them to make bricks without straw. Go get your own straw. They liked it pretty well that way. But God says, this is my promise. I'll make you a great nation. And while you're going to be afflicted for 400 years, I'm going to deliver you so that you can serve me. Talking this morning about how foolish the gospel is to an unbelieving world. <laughs> I'm sorry, Moses, that sounds kind of foolish to me. We're going to go from serving this person to go serving this person. 
Now, how would they do it? Well, we're told in chapter 5 that it would be through feasts. That sounds pretty good, right? I mean, we all enjoy feasts. But also be through sacrifices. And boy, they would not have a clue what this meant, would they? Have you learned anything in Christian Growth Group over the last few weeks about sacrifice? It's a messy thing. And it's an ongoing thing. It's a needed thing. An undesirable thing. But that's how they would serve the Lord, through feasts and through sacrifices. But again, think back to the question I asked you before, what motivates you? Is the means to how you get to something what motivates you? Or is it the reward? The ends? And there was hope to the promise that God had given them. That wasn't just simply, you're just going to serve me. Serving in and of itself is empty if you have no ends in mind that makes it worthwhile. Now, in a physical sense, God was making it very clear, you're going to serve me, but I'm going to bring you into a place that you will dwell. It will be your land. I will give it to you. Joseph had reminded his brothers of this and to give to the descendants when he was about to die at the end of chapter 50, but also we're reminded in Hebrews chapter 11 that Joseph was commended because of his faith and that he told the descendants and his brothers about there would be an exodus, that there would be a deliverance out of this land of affliction. Even to the point where he said, now you make sure you don't leave my bones here. Because he understood that the ultimate fulfillment of this promise in this regard was a land. Not just to serve, but there would be a land to serve in. But also about a relationship. In Exodus chapter 3 verse 15, God furthermore said to Moses, Thus shall you say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. The God of who? Can you tell me whose God you are? Yes, I will. The God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. This is not just a title for God, but this indicates what? The relationship that God had through this covenant that He made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. This is the God I am. I'm not just another God. I'm not one of the gods on the shelf of Abram's shelf before he left his father's land. I'm not just another God that you found in the land of the Canaanites or the Amorites or the Perizzites. I'm the God of Abram, Isaac, Jacob. There's a relationship here. A relationship that can go on through your life if you serve me. But also of deliverance in verse 17 of chapter 3. So I said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite to a land flowing with milk and honey. Now there's a description. The 
this relationship is going to lead you into a land that's going to provide you the good things of life. Okay, so I have a choice to make. I, I can leave here. I can serve this God because he's promised me a land flowing with milk and honey. He's going to eliminate all my enemies. And I can live and serve him there forever. Well, initially, chapter 4, verse 31 tells us that the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about the sons of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed low and worshipped. Now that sounds like a good response. That sounds like something that God was after, right? They believed. Somebody had looked at their low estate and recognized that they were afflicted and, and sought to help them, and so they bowed low and worshipped. However, we find that when Pharaoh initially heard what Moses had in mind and then made the circumstances of their slavery worse, the people no longer believed. As a matter of fact, in chapter 5, verse 21, they said to them, May the Lord look upon you and judge you, for you have made us odious. You have made us to stink in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. And you've actually put the sword in his hand He's going to kill us with. Wow. It's too bad that they didn't have somebody to give them a free book called Your Best Life Now. To help them overcome these challenges that they had in life. To only see that the circumstances were for their good, right? Now they'd already been given a promise. That you would be afflicted. But I will deliver you. And give you a land. They forgot that apparently, right? Because they, they thought that, well, maybe there was a breakup in the Morse code or something. Maybe, maybe the, the postman lost that letter or something because we didn't get this part about things are going to get worse for us. But they did. And it says that they did not listen. Because they had a broken spirit. Chapter 6 goes on to say, because of the harsh slavery. Even after God says in verse 1 of chapter 6, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For under compulsion he will let them go, and under compulsion he will drive them out of his land. God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord, and I appeared to Abram, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, Jehovah, Lord, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan and the land in which they sojourned. Furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the sons of Israel because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage. And I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then I will take you for my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. 
And it fell on deaf ears. Because the only thing that they could focus on was their harsh treatment. The only thing they could focus on was their circumstances. They no longer held dear to them the promise that God had given to them. Even after He reminded them that this is what I'm going to do. pretty easy to see what their motivation was. I'll do it as long as it gets me out from underneath this hand of slavery. I'll do it if it makes my life better. I'll do it if I get an ease from this harsh condition that I'm experiencing. But when things got worse as a result of being identified as God's people... They no longer bowed their head in worship, but they bowed their head under the circumstances and their, their spirit was broken. Now since I only have the first six chapters, we're going to end the part of the people of Israel here. But I'm not finished. Because there's something great for us to learn, I believe. And that is to consider our condition. The people of Israel, the sons of Israel, their conditions with servitude. But guess what? Our condition, servitude as well. When you consider what the New Testament has to say about those who have come to know Christ, he identifies as, as those who were once slaves. To those who were living in slavery to the fear of death. To those who were bought, a word of redemption out of slavery with a price. This one commentator said, Sin too is a harsh taskmaster, taskmaster that ruthlessly uses its slaves but fails to offer any real reward. Do you consider yourself living in this world? Can you relate to that, having worked ruthlessly under a taskmaster, but yet the reward was never enough. It was, it was never there. And apart from Christ, that's who we are. If you're here this morning and you've never placed your faith in a promise given to you by God through the work of Jesus Christ, you are still in this world nothing but a slave to sin. You have no other choice but to give in to that sinful flesh that you are dwelling in. In a broken world in which your circumstances will lie no matter how pretty they may be painted. But apart from Christ, our condition is servitude. We are slaves to sin apart from Christ. However, there is a promise. In Romans chapter 6, verse 20, and this is one on the next slide that we can read together. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now... That you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. 
The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the promise that we've been given. That when we are in Christ, we've been set free. Just as we were singing in all of our songs this morning. To some degree or another, we have been set free through Christ. We are no longer just a slave to sin, but we are now slaves of God so that that which we do has a reward, not leaving us empty. This world is full of examples of people who are slaves, nothing but to this world, but their life ends in ruin. It lies empty. They're searching continually through drugs or through experiences or through people or through things. And the reward is not there. It looks like something there. But it's not. I remember as a growing up watching the... You're going to wonder, how in the world does the Andy Griffith show ever have anything to do with this? But I remember growing up thinking that there was some aspect of reality to this program. I mean, this was just too real, right? They must have gone right into this reality program and filmed things that were actually going on. These streets actually existed. This town actually was there. And then I grew up to realize that, you know what, that was nothing but a movie set on the backside of Bonanza. It wasn't even in a little city. It was a set. (laughs) I'm sorry, Pastor Charlie. You just have to be careful what you say sometimes. (laughs) But even at a young age, not that I was devastated, but I was like, you know what, that just just really stinks. Because I had built it up in my mind that this was real and this this had, but yet it's not. What? You know what tragically happens much worse than that? Is that there will be people that will grow up through adolescence. They'll go to college. They'll go to work. And all during this time, they'll listen to music and they'll watch TV. And of course, today you'll, you know, whatever your instrument is in your hand at the given time, because while I can not relate to much of what goes on today, it's going to change tomorrow anyway. It doesn't matter. But you're exposed to so many media sources today. There's so many influences out there today. And you'll go all the way through life and you'll get to a point where you'll... What? It wasn't real? You mean being the best basketball player in the world isn't real? Having $60 billion isn't real? You mean having a huge house and nice cars and a pool out back isn't real? You mean having these people around me saying they like me isn't real? You mean not having this degree isn't real? And you're going to wonder, why did I make those choices? What was motivating me? Well, I can tell you what was motivating you. the same thing that was motivating me. That was me. I wanted me to be happy. I wanted me to have stuff. I wanted me to be liked by everybody. I wanted me to be important. I wanted me to have all the experiences. I wanted me to have all the information. I wanted me to be the focus of everybody else's world. 
There's a problem with that picture. It's nothing more than mist. It's nothing more than my imagination. Cursed by sin. But as a slave of God, I've been promised a fruit that leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. John Newton, who wrote the hymn, Amazing Grace, wrote this, Beneath the tyrant Satan's yoke, our souls were long oppressed. Till grace our galing fetters broke and gave the weary rest. Jesus, in all that important hour, his mighty arm made known. He ransomed us by price and power and claimed us for his own. Now, free from bondage, sin, and death, we walk in wisdom's way and wish to spend our every breath in wonder, love, and praise. Ere long we hope with him to dwell in yonder world above, and now we only live to tell the riches of his love. That's what we should be as slaves of God. That's what he's called us and enabled us to do. However, and as I close, there are a few obstacles to that. This promise to be delivered, which gives us this hope, which is something better. As we find in Hebrews chapter 11, that while Abraham and uh, he didn't find the promise, and there were others that they're listed here in this uh, testimony of their faith, didn't find. All these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us. That apart from us, they would not be made perfect. There's something better waiting for us. That's our hope. Our promise to be delivered leads us to a motivation and a hope that we can find in nothing other than Christ. However, in this pursuit of that hope, living that hope, that something better, we have to understand that we can't serve two masters. Jesus made this very clear in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. He said, you either love the one and hate the other, or you will cling to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and, the King James word, there's mammon, riches. But it comes from an Aramaic word which rooted in just the idea of being content, or that's where my confidence lies. And you can't serve both God and that which is confident in myself. What I can accrue, what I can experience, what I can be. So we have to make a decision. Every day we wake up, and many times throughout that same day, which master will I serve today? Because I have been freed as a child of God to not just simply serve sin, but now I can serve God. I'm His slave. Will I pursue the hope that I have in Him? That which is something better. But we also have to understand that we cannot please God apart from faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 tells us, apart from faith, it is impossible to please God. So I can't live based on what I see. 
John Piper says, failing to have faith in future grace, that is, failing to be satisfied with all that God is for us in Jesus, is the root of all sin. Misplaced shame, anxiety, despondency, covetousness, lust, bitterness, impatience, pride. These are all sprouts from the root of unbelief in the promises of God. If I'm not living by faith, I'm sinning. Because Romans chapter 14 verse 23 tells us, For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So we cannot even avoid sin without faith. I've got to live my life motivated by hope in something better. And the only way that I can live that way is to have faith in the promise that God has made me through His deliverance in Jesus Christ. Having gotten to the point where I'm just sick of the condition in which I find myself alone apart from Christ in this broken, sinful world. I mean, Romans chapter 8 tells us, and I would encourage you to go and look at verses 18 through 25, about which we experience in this world that God has not called us to be slaves again to sin, but we've been adopted into the family of God. So that as we live by faith, we can look forward to that promise. Brother Nathan, in our singing, reminded us what Revelation has to tell us about the home in which we've been promised. But yet we find so many things that get in our way. Having gotten complacent. And even to some degree content living in this world. So let me leave you with this last word. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, those who have been commended for their faith yet have not received the promise, yet since we have so great a cloud of witness surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Where is he at now? He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus Christ has found his better place. But it came through the affliction on our behalf. What motivates you today? Or another way to ask the question, where's your hope? Is it in something better than what you can find in this world? Are you by faith clinging to that? Are you looking forward to what God has in store for you? When you find that tough to do, look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Father, thank you.